0: what I want to do this morning is focus on the topics and look at a couple texts of scripture that focus on the topics of baptism, adoption, and the grace of God. So let's pray and then we will read our text from God's word this morning. The psalmist says, open the eyes of my heart that we may discover and see wondrous things of you, Jesus, written in your law. And I would pray that you would truly open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see and be confronted by the grace of God, and that we'd be transformed and changed by the grace of God. Father, illumine us and teach us by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. If you were able, I'd ask you to stand one more time for the reading of God's Word, which we are going to read out of two passages of Scripture, Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 to 12. And Matthew, chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and in your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always." to the end of the age. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm actually going to focus largely on Genesis 17, but I included the Matthew 28 reading for one reason this morning. You know, this passage of scripture in Matthew 28 is often called the Great Commission, and it's the mission Jesus gives to his church that As you are going, meaning as you are living your life, what we do, we are to be in the process of making disciples. In other words, pupils, followers, learners of Jesus. What sometimes I think the church doesn't always get, and I mean the church universal, doesn't always get is the connection between discipleship and baptism. Because the text says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, and immediately says, baptizing them. In other words, baptism is part of the discipleship that we do with children. So for Elizabeth and Natalie, their baptism, their discipleship, begins now. We said earlier that their salvation can't be tied to the moment of their baptism, that their baptism doesn't guarantee their salvation. But our commission, as families, as parents, as a church, is to make disciples, to disciple all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're going to look largely at Genesis chapter 17 this morning. And I want to do it, and I guess I've been in the habit, this is three weeks running now, I'm doing a two-point sermon. I'm going to turn Presbyterianism up on its head. But we're going to look at two points this morning, taking a look at the nature of God's covenant. Because baptism is a sign of covenant initiation. It is a sign and a seal of God's covenant initiation. grace so I want us to look at the definition of baptism or the definition of the covenant and the drama of the covenant the definition of the covenant and the drama of the covenant okay so starting with baptism we said baptism is a sign of covenant initiation its entrance into God's visible people And in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 94, it asks the question, what is baptism? And it says, baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost doth signify and seal our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. Notice there it even mentions, doesn't say the word discipleship, but it connects it with discipleship when it says that we partake not only of the benefits of God's covenant, but also we partake of our engagement, our participation, our involvement in what it means to be the Lord's. It's a commitment that we are going to belong to the Lord. John Sartell is a pastor who I think has written one of the best little booklets on infant baptism. And he writes this He says, Every New Testament teaching has its roots in the Old Testament. Every gospel doctrine has its roots in the Old Testament. And so we're going to take a look as we look at Genesis chapter 17 of how God relates to his people by means of covenant. So how do we define covenant? I love how one commentator defined it. He put, put it this way, and he's getting real practical. He says, covenant is a relationship based on the surrender of control. How well are we doing at that? Anybody besides me have an issue with that? Or am I the only control freak in this room? Covenant is a relationship based on the surrender of control. The Westminster Confession in chapter 7 puts it this way. And it begins, it says, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension, on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. Friends, that is absolutely beautiful. See, the definition begins basically by saying, let's look at who God is, and let's look at who human beings are. And it says, the difference between God as transcendent Lord and creator, and man, and it even specifies, doesn't even get to the sin part yet. But is talking about man as creature. That the massive difference between the nature of God as creator and mankind as creatures is so huge. The chasm is so deep and so great. That unless God condescended to us. Picture that. Stooped down. He could never ever communicate with us. That it is the only way we can understand that what we owe God and what God offers us. Now, let's try to get practical with this for a second. What are some of the practical applications of the fact that God relates to us? He deals with us in this way, by way of covenant. The first thing it means is that we don't set the terms of the relationship. We can't pick and choose what to believe and what not to believe. We don't set the terms of the relationship. Now, this certainly flies in the face of our contemporary culture. Our society says it's okay to be religious. It's okay to be spiritual. It's okay to say that you believe, but don't you dare impose your spirituality or your religion on me. I will choose my faith. You choose your faith. There are numerous ways to get to God and you don't tell me how to go about doing it. See, the important thing according to today's society is not what you believe, but that you believe. And this flies right in the face of what we see here. The nature of God's covenant is that we don't set the terms of the relationship. Look at several places throughout the text. Verse 7 says, I will establish My covenant, as an everlasting covenant between me and you. Verse 9, as for you, you must keep my covenant. And verse 10, this is my covenant with you. The covenant is initiated by God. It is established by God. It is set up by God. And it is administered by God. It is how God administers his kingdom. And as such, we don't get to pick and choose what to believe, what to obey, and what to listen to. That's the first application. Look at what else. Look at verses 7 and 8 and what is the heart or essence of the covenant. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and to your offspring after you, and I will be their God. The heart of the covenant is that God will be our God and we will be his people. The essence of the covenant is relational, that we belong to God and he pledges Himself to us. I don't know about you, but I think that's utterly amazing. That this God who had to stoop down and condescend so much, just so we could understand, that we could communicate, says that the essence of this covenant relationship is that God stoops down and says, I pledge myself. You will be my people and I will be your God. See, God offers relationship and communion and intimacy and knowledge of himself. See, one of the places that absolutely when I go back and each year we do our Spruce Creek Bible reading and go back and read the Bible, there's a reason I like to do that. There are different things you pick up on. One of the scenes out of the garden that I love, and this is pre-fall, before Adam and Eve fell into sin, is that there's a small part of the text that's so easy to miss that says God was walking in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve. I happen to think that is utterly cool. That it's like after dinner and sports center, God and the man and the woman go out and take a walk together. That to me is unbelievably cool. And shows the kind of God we worship and the kind of God that we serve that this is his nature his nature is to love and to relate and to give of himself and to want to commune with his people That it was only after sin after we took control rather than surrendering control and determined to choose right and wrong for ourselves that we were exiled from the garden the way back guarded by cherubim wielding a flaming sword, and we were alienated from this relationship. That we were alienated from this love and communion that we still need because we were still built for it and created for it. And one of the implications of this is that there can be no such automatic acceptance by God. There is no... Just come as you are, and God automatically accepts you on our terms. Our sin drives us away from God. As Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 59, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. In other words, he's powerful enough. But the next phrase begins with the word, but... But your iniquities, your sinfulness, your taking control of your own life have separated you from our God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And this leads us to the drama of the covenant. Covenant by definition means relationship. God will be our God and we will be his people. But the drama of the covenant is our sins drive us away and separate us from God. How is this drama resolved? That brings us to our next point. See, do any of us meet the demand of the covenant? The answer is absolutely not. This is the drama. Look with me at verse 10. This brings us to the next thing God tells Abraham to do. In verse 10 we read, This is my covenant with you and your offspring after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, meaning into the future, every male among you who is eight days old, so not yet believing, right? Must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. So look at this progression. Look at the text and what it's saying. Abraham was now to undergo something. He was to undergo circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of God's covenant relationship. And it was a sign involving cutting. Just like the cutting of the animals back in Genesis 15. See, back in Genesis 15, there, the curse of the broken covenant was symbolized by animal carcasses, demonstrating the destruction that would come upon a covenant breaker. God had had Abraham kill these various animals and put them each facing each other. And the idea is it communicates the fact that if you broke the covenant, you would then end up what happened to the animals would happen to you. Except one thing happens in Genesis chapter 15. It's God himself who passes between the pieces. Communicating the fact that he himself would pay for the breaking of the covenant. See, here's the sign applied to Abraham. Applied to Abraham, it says, just as God in human flesh, Jesus fulfilled the picture of Genesis 15, here as the Ultimate seed, the offspring of Abraham, Jesus fulfills the picture of Genesis 17. Jesus was cut off or circumcised for our sin. As such, he fulfills the demand of the covenant, thus solving its drama. It is only by his being cut off that we can be included. See, we broke the covenant And Jesus got the curse. We're the covenant breakers. Jesus fulfills the curse of the covenant by his death on the cross. And more than this, look at who else is included in the covenant drama. The sign is also given to Abraham's children. They were to receive the sign of the covenant to show them that they were part of the covenant people. That they also belonged to God which, of course, raises the natural question, does receiving the sign of the covenant mean that they were automatically saved? And as I mentioned earlier, the answer to that is no. All you have to do historically is look at the example, for instance, of Ishmael. Ishmael received the sign. He was circumcised, yet he showed no evidence of a heart renewed by grace. And the same goes for baptism that replaces circumcision in the New Testament as the sign of covenant initiation. Baptism is given to someone from the outside just like circumcision. It is given to our children just like circumcision. Baptism signifies, just like circumcision, the need for a heart change. But just like circumcision, baptism does not save. It is a sign and a seal pointing to Christ. Showing the need to look in repentance and faith to Christ. Because baptism, like the Lord's Supper, is a means of grace. It shows us and it applies to our hearts. Real grace is conferred to our lives. sealing the benefits of what it means to partake in the redemption of Christ. I love how this one French Reformed modern baptismal blessing goes. I think it sums it up very beautifully. And it says the following. It says, for you, God made the world. For you, he came into the world as a baby like yourself. For you, he lived, he died, and he rose again. And for you, he's coming again. The story is not yet your own, but we will tell you this story until one day you make it your own. So church, we are to pray not only for Elizabeth and Natalie, but also for James and Larissa, that they tell their girls this story every day of their lives. And we need to remember we took a vow to assist the parents in the upbringing of these children So we need to make sure we are telling and living this story both to them and before them all the days of their lives. For this is what it means to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the triune God. Let's pray. Father, how can we ever begin to thank you? And exalt you for the sending of Jesus. And Lord, we pray for the Spirit to apply to each of our lives the work of Jesus. We ask, Father, that there would not be a day that we are not looking to Jesus in repentance and in faith. Father, we thank you so much for the blessings and the reality of the gospel, the good news of Jesus who lived who died, who rose again, and who is coming again for our salvation. In whose name we pray, amen.